Welcome again to our study here in the Epistle of Paul to the Philippians. We are uh, getting towards the end of chapter 1, and we're not going to quite finish chapter 1 this evening, but we're getting that direction, and glad you're here with us. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, we are grateful for your word and for your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, for you have given to us such a treasure that we should know you, that we should be drawn close to you, and that you would redeem us of the penalty of our sin, and that you would bring us into your family. Father, we are so grateful that you sent your Son, Yeshua, that you would willingly come and give your life to redeem the likes of us. And yet, Lord, it was in your plan from eternity past. So your greatness overwhelms us, and we thank you. We thank you for these words of the Apostle Paul, led by the Ruach HaKodesh, and maintained by your hand throughout all of these millennia. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word, and we rejoice to study it tonight. I pray, Father, that as we do, each of us will, by your Spirit again, be able to uh, make good application to our own lives as we seek to walk in the footsteps of our Messiah, as we seek to honor you in our communities, in our families, and in all that we do in our work, as well as in our entertainment. So we bless you, Lord, and we thank you for these words in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It used to be the Holman, now it's the Christian Standard Bible. And we're reading that uh, tonight in uh, the first chapter of Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Messiah Yeshua, to all the saints in Messiah Yeshua who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua Messiah. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to a completion until the day of Messiah Yeshua. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart, and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Messiah Yeshua. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Messiah, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Yeshua Messiah to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Messiah. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Messiah out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Messiah out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter 
only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Messiah is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Yeshua Messiah. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always, with all courage, Messiah will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Messiah, and to die is gain. Now if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Messiah, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Messiah Yeshua may abound. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Messiah. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Messiah's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Well, this uh, Christian Standard Bible makes some interesting interpretations of the Greek, um, but I don't know that any English Bible does everything perfectly. Uh, but let's look now at the notes, and we'll study just two verses tonight, verses 27 and 28. Uh, these are so packed with important uh, concepts that uh, I could only take two verses, and even then had a few more pages than I normally would. So, verse 27, Paul writes to the uh, Philippians, and of course to us as well, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Messiah, so that whether I come and see you, or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. The thing that just grabs you when you read that verse is to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Messiah. And so, what does that mean? Well, the gospel is all centered in Yeshua, is it not? Of course it is. And our lives speak even louder, many times, than our words. So, if we want to be those who carry the good news, the gospel of Messiah then we have to do so in the manner in which we live, in the manner in which we treat one another, in the manner in which we endure when we face hardship and we rejoice in the Lord. That's the overarching aspect of this verse, the emphasis of the opening word of this verse, which is only, monos, which is from the word one, most likely harkens back to the previous context and Paul's yet unknown status as to whether the future will bring his death or his exoneration, and thus his release from prison. I mean, he's still waiting this trial. If he's found guilty of the charges against him, he'll be executed. Thus his primary exhortation 
to the Philippian community is that they remain confident in their faith and remain fervent in their commitment to honor Yeshua in all aspects of their lives. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Messiah. In the Greek, the phrase worthy of the gospel of Messiah follows the opening only, and conduct yourselves follows that. Thus, the word order of the Greek puts the emphasis upon Paul's desire that they depend upon the Lord and not allow his own situation to discourage them or cause them to doubt the goodness of God and the salvation he has secured for all who are his. You could understand Paul's dilemma here. If he is, for whatever reason, found guilty of the charges against him, though he certainly was not guilty, and he is executed, he wants to encourage his readers, don't let that uh, event, if I were to be executed, don't let that in any way make you think that God has failed or that somehow I'm not telling you the truth or that your faith might be weakened in thinking about what happened to me. No. That's why he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Messiah. So Paul's desire is that they continue on regardless of what his uh, outcome might be. This is an, an excellent reminder for all who are in a leadership and teaching position within a local community of believers that it must be the goal of our teaching and leading to put Yeshua as the focus and not ourselves. I think it is unfortunate that in our modern world there are those, and I'm not pointing any fingers, but there are those who seem to have themselves as the focus. Maybe they don't want to, but it seems the way that they put themselves forward and the way that the, the whole ministry is centered around them, that somehow they are gaining a following uh, rather than pointing everyone to the Messiah. Now, I'm not saying that there are those who uh, have, you know, are very popular, who are doing a very well uh, service. Uh, I think there are, there are those. But it seems that there have been in the, you know, in the past history here in America, those who gain their own following, primarily pointing a lot of things towards themselves. Not in a prideful way uh, explicitly, but in everything coming about them and talking about them and so forth. Paul doesn't want that. Paul wants everything he does to point people to the Messiah Yeshua, and that ought to always be the uh, perspective of anyone who is a teacher or a leader in a, a messianic community. So we must always have our primary allegiance and focus upon Yeshua with the goal of walking in his footsteps and becoming more and more like him. And that is the goal of every true teacher of the Bible, that people who hear their teaching would point themselves more and more to Yeshua and to become more and more like him. Now, the Greek word translated here by conduct yourselves offers interesting insights into Paul's admonition. It is the Greek word polituomai, which carries a basic sense of to be a citizen or have one's citizenship or one's home in a given location. The point that Paul is making here, and will emphasize again in chapter 3, is that as believers in Yeshua who have been born again, while we may be citizens of any given country in this world, our ultimate and primary citizenship 
is in heaven. For we are in Yeshua, who is our King, and who reigns at the right hand of God. Have you ever stopped to consider that your citizenship ultimately is in heaven? In other words, we have been born again into a new family, into a new country, with a new king, and his name is Yeshua. Thus, regardless of where we may live in this world, we are to live in such a way that every aspect of our lives marks us as citizens of the country whose reigning king is Yeshua. And you might have caught it already, but this Greek word, polituomai, is the root, one of the roots of where we get our word political or politics. It has to do with the governing of a nation. And one who was a citizen of that nation had special uh, opportunities and position and so forth that non-citizens wouldn't have had. Well, we are citizens of heaven. What does that mean? We have access to Yeshua all the time. We have uh, the Spirit of God dwelling within us if we truly are believers in Yeshua, which means we have been marked out as a citizen, as a citizen of heaven. That will be our ultimate, final, and eternal residence. And so we read in the third chapter, where we're doing a little bit of peeking ahead, but he's saying the same thing, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Yeshua Messiah, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Isn't that something wonderful to meditate on? You know, here we are again in this time where there's been uh, pretty much global upheaval over uh, this pandemic of, of this uh, COVID. And there's all kinds of things going on in governments and so forth that we're kind of shaking our head at and, and wondering what's happening next. Brothers and sisters, we can rely upon God's greatness in Yeshua to maintain our lives here and to keep us unto himself until such time as our days are over, whatever that may be, and we will enter into the very presence of our Messiah, Yeshua. He says to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Messiah. The idea of citizenship is coupled both with privilege and responsibility. For this reason, citizenship is expressed by living in accordance with the laws of the land in which one is a citizen. Now, obviously, as I said, there are certain uh, advantages to being a citizen. There are certain things that citizens can do within a given country that non-citizens cannot. That, too, is uh, all wrapped up in the use of this word by Paul in our text. In our text, the laws of the land in which believers are citizens are nicely uh, enveloped within the very essence of the gospel. And the essence of the good news is that Yeshua, the very Son of God, has paid the penalty of sin for all whom the Father has given to him. He says, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. And those who come to me, I will not cast out or lose. I will never lose them. What a wonderful, wonderful promise to all of us who are in him. This means that they are thereby secured as those who have both full access to his grace and salvation, as well as the power of renewed life energized 
by the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, so that as citizens of heaven they are enabled to obey and honor the King of Kings, Yeshua, and to live all aspects of one's life in accordance with His rule to give all glory to Him. Once again, that is the goal of our salvation. Granted, the the wonderful thing that we receive is eternal life, forgiveness of our sins, close community with God Himself, and the dwelling of God with us in the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. But ultimately, all of that must go not only to our good and to our welfare, but to His glory. That the world would see that He is great and has accomplished that which no one else could have done. So we should note that Paul uses the gospel as the quintessential expression of the life of the redeemed. Have you ever thought of it that way? That the very gospel is what identifies us. This is because the gospel is the good news that Yeshua has died to pay the penalty of sin for all who are His, and that in bringing them to be citizens of His kingdom, He likewise gives them the power to live in a way that honors and glorifies Him. This ought to be a driving motivation for us in all aspects of our life. How we treat one another, as husband and wife, how we care for each other, as parents, as we raise our children to know and understand the goodness of God and His greatness, but also their need of Him. And then as we care for others, and as we do what is right, even when it's far more difficult than just doing something else, we set ourselves to give Him glory in all of our life. Thus the gospel, when understood as that which the scriptures themselves define, contains the truth which, when received by faith, transforms a life of one who was without hope to a life lived in obedience to God's righteous commands. As Paul teaches us in his epistle to the Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, that is the gospel, is the very power of God, resulting in salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, beginning with faith and proceeding to growing faith, as it is written, but the righteous man or person shall live by faith. How then are we to walk worthy of the gospel in Messiah? Let's be a little more specific. By this, Paul means that those who have been redeemed by the work of Yeshua on our behalf have been made new in that we have been given the ability through the abiding presence of the Ruach HaKodesh as redeemed children of God to say no to the sinful passions of the flesh and to obey God by living in accordance with His will and His directions as given to us in the Scriptures themselves. What is our, our sinful flesh wants to tell us, no, no, you can't do that. No, 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 you're not, you're not good enough. You're not worthy. And the enemy wants us to know, or wants us to think, that, well, we're just not able to do all that God wants us to do. These are the lies from the pit. We need to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That old way of thinking. And we need to set ourselves in, in everything that we do. Can, we can work. We can entertain. We can play. We can rest. 
We can even, even undergo difficulties to the glory of God. All of these things. He doesn't want us to uh, seclude ourselves in some monastery somewhere and say, well, you know, we're giving everything up for him. No. He wants us to be in the world, but not of the world. He wants us to be daily witnesses for him. Of how we live, how we talk, how we act, how we react to that which is difficult. All of that is to the glory of God. Surely the preservation of the scriptures through the millennia is yet another proof that God in his sovereignty has maintained them, for they teach the very truths of God in accordance to which his children are to live. He's given us the, the, the playbook. He's given us the instruction manual. This is why it's so important for us to read it, to know it, to memorize it, to hide it in our hearts, and to have it ready in our hearts and minds. So what does he mean by the gospel of Messiah? It is the good news that God has reconciled sinners to himself through the substitutionary work of Messiah for all who were given to him in his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his intercession. The wages of sin are, what, death. So Yeshua died for us so that we might live. But had he not resurrected, he would not be the one he said he was. He's one with the Father in eternity. He's infinite in time. He cannot cease to be. Therefore, his resurrection was proof beyond any doubt that he is our Savior and that we too will raise from the dead, even as he did, in order to have eternal life. His resurrection, of course, was unique, for he rose on the third day. He did not wait a general resurrection. He proved himself to be the resurrection and the life. And why the ascension? Because it was required for him to ascend to the Father in order to be our intercessor at the right hand of the Father. He intercedes for us. You can read his prayer in John 17. The very thing that he prays for us. And we know that everything he prays, everything he intercedes for, will take place. For the Father always says yes. As a result, the infinite debt they owed as sinners has been fully paid. And again, this is another lie of the enemy that he tries to bring upon us. Oh boy, you're just not good enough. You're kind of messing up here. You've got you've done wrong things and you know it. What are you going to do about that? And he wants us to uh, give up. Say, oh, I'm just not good enough. It's not about us, is it? It's about what God has done in his son for us. What Yeshua did for us when he died for us and paid the penalty of our sin. As a result, the infinite debt that they owed as sinners has been fully paid. Being born again through the work of the Ruach and being given faith in Yeshua, they are redeemed from being objects of God's righteous wrath and have become children in the very family of God, thus enabled to address Him as Abba, Father, as Paul writes in Romans 8.15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, 
but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons or as children, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Oftentimes we think of the gospel as that which we give to the unbelievers. Well, we are to do that. But the gospel encapsulizes all of God's promises to us that we are made new, that by God's work in Yeshua and through the work of the Ruach HaKodesh, we are destined to be with Him forever. And that's what he writes in Ephesians 1, 5 through 6. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Yeshua Messiah to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved One. Isn't that just a fantastic reality? And that needs to be the driving force in our desire to do what He wants us to do, to be His, his children, to be His servants, to take the goodness of His gospel to others, to live it out in front of them, and to give glory to God. Well, the gospel, euangelion, is literally a good announcement or a message, the word being made up of the Greek eu, which means that which is good or beneficial, and angelia, which is the word message. Well, we get the word uh, angel is based on that same kind of Greek word, angelos, angeloi. Uh, but at any rate, so it's a good message. That's what gospel means, the good news, the good message. Its background is found in the Hebrew word basar, used often in the PL form in the Tanakh with a meaning to announce good news. Here are some examples from the Tanakh. For instance, Psalm 40, verse 9. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. So to, I proclaimed glad tidings. That's basar, that which is wonderful. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. There's our word again in the Hebrew and uh, translated in the Septuagint, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Isn't that really the very heart of our joy? That God will always do what He has said, and that He has accomplished in every way our eternal salvation. Let us live today in the joy of that, and in the contemplation of what it will be like to be with Him. And then Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord, which is Adonai yod heh Those of you that know some Hebrew, you can see that the uh, vowel pointing on that yod heh are the first and last vowel of Elohim, because you don't want to say Adonai Adonai, so when you're reading it in the synagogue, you say Adonai Elohim, um, is upon me because the Lord... Here, yod heh has the vowels of the word Adonai. Has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. The gospel, centered in Yeshua's work for sinners, is surely good news. For in our sin we were without hope in this world. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that is, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Yes, we have sure and firm hope 
It's not something you think might happen. Hope, oftentimes in the scriptures, is that which is promised by God, and therefore hope is that which lays hold of that promise and claims it as true for now, even though the full reality of it is in the future. And Paul reminds the believers in Ephesus of their lives before coming to faith in Messiah Yeshua. He says in Ephesians 2.12, Remember that you were at that time separate from Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise. Literally, uh, in the in the Greek it has the word the, covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And what was that promise? The promise was given to Abraham that his seed would bless all of the nations. It's the beginning of the promise which is woven throughout the whole of Scripture. Thus, when Paul admonishes the Philippian believers to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Messiah, he is reminding them of what they were without the saving work of Messiah and to compare their former lives with the bounty of blessing which is now theirs as being in Messiah. So, in that sense, the gospel can be used as a short way of saying the whole of God's mercy and grace. He says, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Here we see clearly that Paul considers unity within the local community of believers to be the quintessential core of believers living out their true identity as beloved and redeemed children of God. Sometimes I think we don't put emphasis upon unity. But from Paul's perspective, the unity of the believers is an an essential part of showing the world the gospel. Why? Because we have come together not of our own uh, deeds, not because of who we are by ourselves in our sinful nature, but because we have become in the Messiah Yeshua. We have a, a unity because we are in Him. We have been redeemed, each one of us, by Him, in the same manner and in the same way by His death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord, and our unity bespeaks our understanding and our living out of the gospel. Well, such unity is first based upon standing firm in one spirit, according to Paul. To stand firm seems to have a military expression in mind, that is, to to describe not giving up ground to the enemy. That's kind of what this word means in the Greek. To hold your ground, not to give way, as the following context would indicate. For there is an ongoing battle with those who reject the truth of the gospel and who stand against those who confess Yeshua to be their Lord and Savior and serve Him by living out the gospel in this fallen world and in doing so to make unity a high priority. In other words, for Paul, seeking in every way to remain unified together with the believers in your local community or however, whatever, uh, maybe it's a small Bible study, maybe it's a larger community, or maybe it's just a few that meet together on a regular basis and care for each other. We're to work hard to maintain the unity of the faith. Why? Because an onlooking world will know that there is something different when people who are very diverse are able to love one another and to maintain unity together. A military regiment that is not united in the heat of battle is doomed to defeat. That's the picture we get here. 
He says, in another place, of course, put on the whole armor of God. Which means what? We're in a battle. When we're in battle, those of you that, I've never been in the military, but those of you that have been in the military and seen uh, action and war and so forth, you know how important it is for the, the unit that you're with to remain in contact and to help each other and to care for each other so that you preserve each other's lives. Calvin notes regarding the priority of unity and what occurs when it is absent. He, he notes this, standing in one spirit. This certainly is one of the main excellences of the church, and hence this is one means of preserving it in a sound state inasmuch as it is torn to pieces by dissensions. Oftentimes we don't do well in this. Something bugs us and it continues to bug us and we say, well, I'll find someplace else. Well, Paul wants us to put unity together as a high, high priority. Humbly learning to be together, to help one another, to care for one another, and to help each other be what God wants each one to be. But what does Paul mean by his words, in one spirit? Well, the way that the NASB has translated it, and other, it sounds like just to get along, to have one, to be as though you have one spirit. The question is whether we should understand one spirit to mean having a unified agreement between each other, or whether the word spirit refers to the Holy Spirit and should therefore be capitalized in our English Bibles, meaning being together submitted to the Spirit of God. While the majority of modern English translations, including the NESB, which is the one I use regularly in my notes, have spirit lowercase and thus understand Paul's words to be referencing the human spirit, it has been shown that such a usage of the Greek pneuma, in the in a sense of to be of one spirit, meaning to agree together, is not an established metaphor in ancient Greek usage. Gordon Fee puts it this way. He says, in one spirit, which seems to make perfectly good sense to us, in fact, has no analogy in Greek literature, especially not in Paul and in the New Testament. Whereas the term one soul, psuche, occurs frequently to describe oneness or unity between two or more people. The word pneuma, spirit, is never so used. And he's right. Thus, we should understand the phrase in one spirit to indicate the sphere in which true unity exists, that is, by all submitting to the work and leading of the Ruach as he impresses upon all the teaching of God's word. We see Paul using a similar expression in one spirit in his epistle to the Ephesians again. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Given this understanding, what then is the primary basis for the unity within a community of believers for which Paul exhorts us to strive? It is the genuine work of the Ruach, of the Spirit, and the maturing resolve of all who comprise the community to submit to the Spirit's leading as he enables them to live out their faith in full harmony with the Scriptures. Before we leave, before we leave our community and go somewhere else, before we decide this isn't for me, have we honestly sought the leading of the Spirit? Are we convinced that this is what the Spirit wants? If we are, then we would come to the community and ask for counsel. Is this what you see as well? 
but all too often in our modern world, we have a tendency to just go our own way. And that brings dissension rather than unity. So this requires humility of our own spirit, submitting to the Ruach HaKodesh by whose leading we are enabled to follow the truth of God's word and to gain true unity with one another. Humility means not only uh, submitting to the Spirit of God, but the Spirit of God would also lead us and urge us to serve each other within the community. That takes humility. Such true humility is also described in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And be subject to one another in the fear of Messiah. What do you mean, be subject to one another? Put someone else as more important than yourself. If that were truly the very basis upon which we make such decisions as to how we're going to function within a community, how we're going to be part of the community, how we're going to enable the community more and more to be unified and so forth, if we would take that perspective, we could easily see why dissensions would diminish. It says, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Here, unity is described as being with one mind. Miyotsuke. This does not in any way mean agreeing in every instance with each other. But it does mean finding true unity in the established truths of the scriptures as all submit to each other for the cause of Messiah Yeshua proclaimed in the gospel. We have a unity in things that we know all of us agree to be true. Those things that we may have some differences on, okay, but let us humbly uh, accept those differences and not uh, consider that it requires dividing from each other. Indeed, it is in the unity of believers within the local community that enables the community to be seen by outsiders as having something of great value, something worth investigating. Surely we must give the gospel by our words and communication. But when a community is known for caring for each other and showing their ability to maintain unity, the fruit of living out the gospel is seen. This is undoubtedly Paul's meaning by the phrase, the faith of the gospel, for it is the living out of one's faith that gives a living expression to the glory of the gospel message. And, once again, Paul emphasizes this in Ephesians, another of the prison epistles, of course. He says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Can you see there in that one section of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, how he weaves all those things together? Our calling, which is what? To become like the Messiah. We're to become more and more like him. We're to walk in his footsteps, so to speak. With all humility, which means what? I have needs. I need others. I can't do it all on my own. Gentleness, being careful when we approach someone and we think there needs to be a change. With patience, not expecting everything to fit together all of a sudden. Being willing to persevere. Showing tolerance for one another in love. Of course there's going to be differences in personality and differences of things that the way people do things and so forth, but we're to be tolerant of each other and then being diligent 
doing everything we possibly can to preserve the unity of the Spirit in this whole bond of peace which we have with the Lord. If we share fellowship with Yeshua through the Ruach HaKodesh, if we have this peace within our hearts and we all enjoy that peace from the same source, God Himself, shouldn't that most certainly bring us together? And then verse 28, In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too, we could say, is from God. Every good gift and everything we have, even as turmoil within a community can weaken it from fulfilling the goal of being a light to the unbelieving society, so can a fear of being persecuted for their faith by those who despise Yeshua, and thus causing them to retreat from openly confessing Yeshua as their Lord and Savior. So, this fear of being persecuted could cause people to retreat and say, well, boy, I better be careful. You know, they see me going to this place or being part of this community or whatever. I could be target for all kinds of persecution. Paul says, no. Don't be alarmed by your opponents. He's talking about those who would even persecute believers. And that's been common throughout the history of the world. So, this would be another method of the enemy to silence the glorious gospel of the message, wouldn't it? Rather, Paul exhorts them and us to rely all the more upon his sustaining power to defeat the enemy and not, therefore, to give way to fear and trepidation. When the enemy sees that their tactics have no power against God's people, they will recognize that they are being defeated. Right? Isn't that what Paul says? Which is a sign of destruction for them. If they see that those who are believers are willing even to give up their life for Yeshua, they begin to wonder if there isn't something real here. And where do they stand with the God who gives such strength? It is our faith in God and His working within us to strengthen us for whatever battles we face that makes it clear to the enemies of the gospel that they are defeated. And then he says, which is a sign of destruction for them. Surely Paul understood firsthand what it meant to be an enemy of the gospel. For in his own words, before coming to faith in Yeshua, he locked up believers in prisons, punished them in all the synagogues, tried to force them to blaspheme, which would mean to deny Yeshua, and participated in having them executed, according to his own words in Acts 26, 10-11. Yet not only was the miraculous event on the road to Damascus the turning point in Paul's life, but undoubtedly he understood personally how the resolved resilience of the believers he persecuted had the strength to even face death for what they believed. This must have likewise affected him as he wondered about what made them so strong. As F. F. Bruce notes, Paul himself had been a persecutor once and could recall the steadfastness of those whom he attacked. If at the time it had seemed to him to be obstinacy rather than steadfastness, yet after his conversion he could look back and appreciate it for what it really was, evidence of the power of Christ 
enabling them to maintain their faith unimpaired and evidence that he himself was, albeit in all good conscience, fighting a losing battle against God. Well, surely it was the event on the road to Damascus where Yeshua himself appeared to Paul. But as he began to contemplate everything, you have to believe from what he writes here to uh, the Philippian believers. He says, when we're steadfast in our faith, it causes even those who are our enemies to wonder, what is it that we have that they don't? Clearly, the gospel is used by the Ruach HaKodesh to bring conviction of sin to those who previously had no such conviction whatsoever. Even when transgressing established laws, they thought that as long as their transgression was not discovered, all was good. But the gospel, when used by the Ruach to pierce the heart, sin is seen for what it truly is, being a rebel against the holy God who controls all things. And this is why, as we grow in our understanding of who we are in the Lord Yeshua, sin becomes more and more sinful. (laughs) We can't just wipe it away and say, well, everybody does that. No. It was my sin that took him to the cross. And it was his cross that brought me to him. As one who had forgiven all of my sin and who would forever cause me to dwell with him in eternity. He says, but of salvation for you. It is destruction for those who seek to overpower God's work, but it is salvation for you. These inspired words of Paul are as true for us as they were for the Philippian believers. Thus we see that we need not fear even those who may persecute us for our faith. For in this inspired text we are given God's command not to fear those who may be our opponents, and the Lord's commands are always accompanied by His provision, right? God does not command us to something that He doesn't enable us to do as we yield to Him. Yes, the Lord will give us the strength to persevere, even when facing severe persecution for our faith. And we also can be sure that such strength will be used by God to open hearts to the gospel message. The enemy regardless of the methods he may use, is destined to failure and defeat. And he says, and this too is from God, the very strength that we have, the very desire to honor him, and the strength that we will have when we need it, even if we feel we don't have it now, he promises to give it to us. You can read the stories of those who were persecuted for their faith, And how they themselves gave indication that God was enabling them to stand firm. So he says, and that too is from God. God is the source of strength to all who are in Messiah Yeshua, regardless of what they may face in this life. Therefore, it is imperative that we grow in our faith and our commitment to honor him in all aspects of our lives. For in him we live and move and exist. And I just remind you again that one component, an essential component, in our growth in the Lord and our establishing and growing faith in Him and being the very people He intends us to be is not only the Scriptures and prayer, but it is fellowship with other believers. Now, I know in some cases that's very difficult 
Uh, we're doing that in a way that they didn't do it in the first century right now. But it is to commit ourselves to others who are believers, that together we may aid one another and help each other be what God intends us to be. And so I end with this verse from James. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Even as God enabled those in the past who gave their lives for their faith, so if we are to face that, He will do the same for us. We need not fear. We need to be valiant and unified together so that God would be glorified. Uh, That's where we're going to end for this evening. And I look forward to being with you again next week as we continue our study in this epistle to the Philippians.